to prepare our minds, prepare our hearts for what Paul writes in the verses before us. Here's the first question I have for us. What do we see when we look at our world? What do we see when we look at our world? We see conflict, racism, poverty, war, disease, death, brokenness. Uh, When we look at our world, we see the negative effects of sin all around us. But here, let me build on the question. Do we also see, at the same time, do we also see the positive effects of God's common grace? Do we see the astounding beauty of creation? Do we see creativity in art and music? Do we see skill and perseverance in sport? Do we see the availability of medical wonders? Do we see a measure of law and order in the governance of society? Do we see acts of valor and virtue? Do we see acts of compassion directed toward the destitute? I trust, I really hope, I trust our sight of the negative effects of man's sin doesn't obscure our sight of the positive effects of God's common grace. Are you with me? I'm going to ask another question. What do we see when we look at our community? Somerville County, for example. What do we see? We see broken homes. We see substance abuse. Uh, We see sexual immorality. I suppose when we look, we see laziness. We see recklessness. Uh, We see selfishness. In a word, we see the negative effects, consequences of man's sin. But do we also see the positive effects of God's common grace? Do we see the neighbor who's devoted to his wife and children? Even though he isn't a believer. Do we see the man who volunteers at the fire department? Do we see the woman who volunteers at the school or hospital? Do we see the individual who serves faithfully a sheriff or judge? Do we see glimmers of mercy, bravery, and fidelity? Again, I trust our sight of the negative effects of man's sin doesn't obscure our sight of the positive effects of God's common grace. Uh, We need to spend time. I'm speaking to Christians, believers, those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus. We do need to spend time regularly pondering God's common grace. We need to look for it. Uh, Speaking for myself, I'm going to hazard a guess. Most of us, if not all of us, who are Christians fall into this category. At times, I neglect to look for God's common grace. At times, I fail to appreciate God's common grace to the extent to which 
I ought to appreciate it. For whatever reason, I find myself focusing on the negative more often than focusing on the positive. I find myself looking to the negative effects of man's sin more often than I look to the positive effects of God's common grace. But we must do this as believers. We need to look for God's common grace. It's everywhere. And we need to trace it back to its source. And we need to remember that God's common grace in this world is for the benefit of his people. And we need to thank him for it. Now, let me add a third question. World, community, the next one, church. What do we see when we look at our church? Those of us who are members here at Grace Community Church, what do we see? We see some concerns. We see some problems. We see some issues. Uh, struggles. Difficulties. Uh, enough said. Uh, we see, on occasion... Uh, we see uh, the negative effects, consequences of our, of our sin. It's true. Can't deny that. We don't have our head in the sand. We see the negative effects of our sin in our midst on occasion. But do we also see the evidence of God's grace, special grace among us? Do we see in the midst of the negative effects of our sin, do we see the positive effects of God's special grace? I'm no longer talking about his common grace. His common grace is his grace that he pours out upon the world. He sends the sun, he sends the rain upon the righteous and the unrighteous. That's no longer what I'm talking about. I'm referring now to his special grace. It is reserved for an exclusive, very exclusive subset of humanity, the church. His grace toward his church. Do we see the positive effects of his special grace among us? Do we see growth? Do we see maturity? Do we see selfless service? Do we see people ministering out of love? Do we see examples of patience, faithfulness, compassion, and fortitude? I stand before you and I thank God because I do see it. That in the midst of, yes, the negative effects of our sin, my sin included, I see very clearly, I trust we all see, the positive effects of God's special grace among us. Uh, it's a challenge. We are drawn to the negative far too often before we are drawn to the positive. And it really, it really requires something of a spiritual discipline, doesn't it? To spend time daily in, yes, considering the evidences of God's common grace in our community in this world. And to spend time considering and thanking God for his special grace among us. It is precisely what the Apostle Paul does in the passage before us. You found Romans chapter 15. Follow along now as I begin reading in verse 14. I myself, says Paul, am satisfied. Uh, we might insert the word persuaded. Another word we might use, convinced. I myself am satisfied, persuaded, convinced about you. He's writing to the church in Rome. He is writing to Christians, 
followers of the Lord Jesus. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That ends our reading today. That's our text. Romans 15 verses 14, 15, and 16. With these verses we enter Paul's conclusion to this epistle. And so we have an introduction. Go all the way back to chapter 1, first seven verses. He provides an introduction to the epistle. Chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through to chapter 15, verse 13, we have the body, the meat of the letter. He ends it. We saw last Sunday, verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I trust you have been praying that prayer this past week. I have been praying this prayer for you. This is the cap, if you like, the pinnacle, the climax of the body of the epistle. And then beginning in verse 14 of chapter 15, it's long and it is drawn out. All the way through to the end of chapter 16, we have the conclusion. And so he is now entering, easing into the conclusion to his letter. And he begins this conclusion by inserting a word of clarification. So it is as if he's saying, hold on a second, before I wrap this thing up, let me clarify. I hesitate to use this expression, but I hope it, I hope it conveys what I think. The essence of what Paul is doing here. He seems to be giving a veiled apology in these verses. A veiled apology. Veiled. It's not really apologizing. Kind of, sort of. What he's trying to do is just clarify. He doesn't want any misunderstanding. And so look at how he opens verse 15. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. And so as I look back now, I'm wrapping this thing up. I've, I've explained the gospel, first 11 chapters, and I've applied the gospel, chapters 12, 13, 14, and most of 15. And now as I wind it up and I'm drawing it to a conclusion, I acknowledge as I look back at what I have written that I have said some things in this letter to you and I have written very boldly Here's my concern. You might misinterpret me, right? There might be someone sitting there in the church at Rome when one of the brothers gets up on a Sunday morning, Sunday evening, whenever, and reads this letter for all to hear. And as he goes on and on through this epistle, uh, you notice I have written very boldly. I've said some very pointed things. And my concern is some of you might start thinking to yourself, hang on a second, who's Paul? 
he didn't start this church. He's never even visited this church. He doesn't hold any position of authority in this church. He's not an elder. How dare he say, write, some of the things he has written? Who does he think he is? I have written on some points very boldly. And so he inserts here at the start of his conclusion a word of clarification in order to remove any potential offense. And to remove that offense, what he does is he points them to two things. One, two. Firstly, he points them to their own maturity. That's what we saw back in verse 14. I myself am satisfied. I am satisfied about you, my brothers, tenderhearted, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. And so I, I don't want you to be offended by what I have said, how I have said it. I, I, let me point you to the fact that I know you're mature. That me, I, myself, it's emphatic. I am satisfied. I am persuaded. I am convinced of your spiritual maturity. And he actually rhymes off three things. He points firstly to what? He says that you yourselves are full of goodness. It is as if he's saying the following. I've given you dozens and dozens and dozens of commandments. I've told you to offer yourselves to God as living sacrifices. I've told you to be transformed by the renewal of your minds, and I've told you in very specific terms what this will look like. My zeal in exhorting you, my enthusiasm in commanding you, might give you the erroneous impression that I think you're a bunch of backsliders who need constant correcting and admonishing. Let me clarify. I know you're full of goodness. Goodness is one of the fruit of the Spirit. And I see it in your desire to please God above all else. So he acknowledges that they are full of goodness. He acknowledges, secondly, that they are filled with all knowledge. It's right there in the middle of verse 14. Again, it is as if he is saying the following. Look, my brothers, I have sent you an exhaustive treatise. It's approximating a little book now. This treatise, this letter on what it means for the righteous to live by faith. I've explained the doctrine of justification in relation to sanctification, in relation to election. I've demonstrated that the gospel is rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. I've tackled some really thorny issues. I've attempted to unravel some complex theological issues. I've added a long list of exhortations. This might give you the erroneous impression that I think you're completely clueless. Let me clarify. I know you're filled with all knowledge. I know you understand the Christian faith. And I know you live the Christian faith. But he acknowledges a third thing. Right at the end of verse 15. What? That they are able to instruct 
one another. Again, let me add lip. Let me put words in the mouth of the Apostle Paul. It is as if he is saying, I've written a long letter, including a detailed explanation and application of the gospel. At several places, I have entered into your personal lives. I've dedicated a significant amount of space to telling you how to get along with each other. This might give you the erroneous impression that I think you're incompetent, incapable of ministering to one another. Let me clarify, I don't think you're deficient in this area. I know you care for one another. I know you watch over one another. I know you're able to instruct one another. I see it, brothers. Here's what I see. You are full of goodness. You are filled with all knowledge. You are able to instruct one another. For those three reasons, what more do I need? I myself am completely satisfied about you. Do not misinterpret. Do not misread the fact that I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Don't be offended. I know who you are. I know how you're doing, and I know of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing he points them to. The second thing he points them to is his ministry. So he points them to their maturity, verse 14. He points them to his ministry, middle of verse 15. Because, and so I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And so did you catch the phrase right there at the start of verse 16? He describes himself as a minister, a servant, if you like, of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles Work out from that statement. Work back to the final statement in verse 15. Work the other way forward to the rest of what he says in verse 16. And he actually mentions three details concerning his ministry. Firstly, he says he ministers because of the grace of God, given, the grace given him by God. That's the statement right at the end of verse 15. Because of the grace given me, by God. Fascinating phrase. What does he mean? He uses the exact phrase back in chapter 12, verse 3, because of the grace given me by God. He uses the phrase way back in chapter 1, verse 5, and he states that we have received grace and apostleship. That's what he has in view in chapter 12, verse 3. That's what he has in view here in chapter 15, verse 15, when he speaks of the grace given me by God. This isn't God's common grace, sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This isn't God's special grace, those whom he foreknew, he predestined, those whom he predestined, he called, those whom he called, he justified, those whom he justified, he glorified. No, this is a grace to ministry. This is a grace that God had given specifically to Paul, whereby he had appointed him an apostle. And so we know the Lord Jesus appointed a dozen apostles. These were men who were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. 
These were men who were given the same authority and sent with the same authority by Christ, the same authority with which the Father sent him into the world. These were Christ's commissioned ambassadors, representatives, the very foundation of the church, the apostles. And so Paul seems to be saying, yeah, I've been bold, very bold. But I am simply fulfilling my calling as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the authority, therefore, by which I minister is not my authority. It is not an earthly authority. It is a divine authority given to me by Christ himself. But he inserts a second detail concerning his ministry. He says he ministers in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Brings us into the 16th verse. Yes, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. What does he say next? In the priestly service of the gospel of God. I think he has in view what he said back in chapter 12, the first verse. There he pleads with this church. He begs them to offer themselves, their lives as living Sacrifice, holy, sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship. And Paul seems to be saying here, look, I do the same thing. I minister as a, as a priest and I bring my burnt offerings. I bring my thanksgiving offerings. I recognize that the Lord Jesus Christ is everything. He is all in all everything to me. Everything I have is a result of grace. I acknowledge his, his hand in my life. I acknowledge his calling upon my life. And as an expression of thanksgiving, I now, looking at the mercies of God in Christ, live for him and live my life as a burnt offering. And in particular, that's how I view my ministry. Please understand, there isn't a selfish bone in my body. I'm not doing this to please me. I haven't written this letter to please me. I haven't written this letter for any selfish motive. I haven't been to your church. I'm not a member of your church. I have written this letter because I am an apostle. I've written this letter not only because I'm an apostle seeking to fulfill my ministry, but because I minister as a priest and I view my ministry as a burnt offering, an offering of thanksgiving that I want to present to God. And so I'm doing this to please him. And so, yes, I've been bold. Please understand, I'm simply ministering as a burnt offering to the living God. He adds a third detail. He says he ministers so that the offering of the Gentiles, verse 16, the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He likely has Isaiah 66 in view, verse 20. We read the following. They shall bring all your brothers from all the nations. That's us, folks. They shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, to my holy mountain, Jerusalem. And so he viewed converts. He viewed believers. He viewed Christians, including this church at Rome, as, yes, part of this offering that he was lifting up to God, desperate to see this offering accepted by God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit himself. So, yes, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. 
Yes, there's the potential for some misunderstanding for you to walk away after reading this letter with your nose all bent out of joint. But please understand, I've been bold. But I am attempting, I am striving to present you as an acceptable sacrifice to God. And so he points them to his ministry. He points them to their maturity. Why? Back to our starting point at the outset of verse 15. On some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. He has cleared away any potential misreading, any potential misinterpretation of what he has said or how he has said it. Did you get all that? There's an exposition of the text. I want to make five observations. Five observations. Now remember, we're no longer in the body of the text. And so Paul, as he writes, is no longer explaining truth. He's no longer expounding doctrine. He's no longer, for the most part, giving commands. He is simply now giving sort of a narrative. So we need to be a little careful when it comes to interpretation and understanding what exactly is the point here. What are we supposed to glean from this? And so as we make our way from here, right through to the end of the conclusion in the weeks to come, yes, there are going to be a few doctrines in there. Yes, there are still going to be one or two prayers, one or two commands, but for the most part, it's kind of a narrative. And so we want to look at Paul by way of an example and glean what we can learn from him, yes, by his apostolic authority as seen in his example. And I want to do that with these verses, and I want to make five key observations. And I'm going to put all of these under the title for this sermon, which is what? A healthy Christian. So here you have it. Five observations concerning a healthy Christian from the example of the Apostle Paul himself. Here is observation number one. A healthy Christian encourages others. Where do we get that from? Well, it's right there in verse 14, his example. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers. Again, I am persuaded. I am convinced. Paul, in that single statement, is seeking to encourage his brothers and sisters in the Lord. A healthy Christian, I submit to you, is an encouraging Christian. Let me add just a few thoughts to that quickly to convince us of this, its importance, and to make sure we schedule time for this. Uh, some of us need to schedule time for this. It doesn't always come naturally, does it? But to actually schedule time, to actually start the week, here we are Sunday, the first day of the week, and to think to myself, come next Sunday, you know, two, three, I, I'm just going to go out of my way to encourage someone in this church. I'm going to call someone. I'm going to write an email. I'm going to get together with them for coffee. And I'm not, I'm not going to open the statement by saying, I myself am satisfied about you. Because I know I'm not going to get very far with that. All right? That's not what I'm recommending. I'm going to use my own words. But my goal is going to be the same. I want this person to go away lifted up. I want them to go away encouraged. And what happens when we encourage people like that? Just quickly, four results. Number one, we'll promote change. We will promote change. 
Encouragement stimulates the desire to grow. Far more than criticism, brothers and sisters, far more than criticism. Encouragement stimulates the desire to grow. Second result we will see is that we will adorn the faith. We will adorn the faith. Far too often the Christian faith is equated with criticism and condemnation. Criticism, condemnation. Condemnation, criticism. At times both are necessary. I will not deny that. We see both in Scripture. But if that is all there is, the Christian faith becomes very ugly very quickly. Encouragement, it stifles a spirit of criticism and condemnation. Third result we'll see is this. We'll actually strengthen people. Why? Because as we encourage people by pointing out to them God's work of grace in them, it testifies to God's work, thereby what? Strengthening them in the faith. Here's the fourth result, I guarantee it. We will glorify God. Why? Because encouragement magnifies the grace of God. And so as I see things in you, and I attempt, however feebly, to encourage you, in so doing, I am drawing it back to its ultimate source, which is God himself. And I am praising God for his handiwork made evident in you. So there's the first observation. A healthy Christian encourages others. Here's a second observation. A healthy Christian applies God's truth. I think we get that out of the triad in the rest of verse 16. Here's what I see about you. Number one, you're full of goodness. Number two, you're filled with all knowledge. Number three, you're able to instruct one another. Again, I think all Paul is saying there is this. Look, I've just made it through the application portion of this letter. I really started it back in chapter 12, verse 1, with those two pivotal commandments. Remember, present yourselves as living sacrifices. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. They were foundational. And then I heaped commandments upon commandments, exhortations upon exhortations. And look, that could give you this impression. Yes, I'm writing very boldly, and I'm criticizing you. I'm not. When I think of you, I actually see you applying those truths already. Here's how I see it. You're full of goodness. You're filled with all knowledge, and you're able to instruct one another. That is a description of a person who is living out everything I have been saying since chapter 12, verse 1. There you have it. Someone who lives and puts into practice all of these commands I've given you. Well, that is an individual filled with goodness. That is a mark of the Holy Spirit, a fruit of the Holy Spirit. That is a person who's really filled with knowledge, not, not, not speculative knowledge, practical knowledge. You're living out the faith. And those are people who are concerned for one another and therefore instructing one another. These are people, this church, whose lives are shaped and molded by the mercies of God. And what a tremendous example for us. A tremendous, again, the word exhortation for us, that a healthy Christian is an individual who applies God's truth. It is not how much you know, my friend. It isn't. At times, I fear, at times I fear, I really fear, because there is a delicate balance. There is a delicate balance. I want us to be a reading people. Wesley said, a growing Christian is a reading Christian. You have to be. I want us to be a reading people. I want us to be a studious people. I want us to be a people 
who enjoy unraveling difficult theological issues and talking, talking about those issues and maybe even debating those things in good spiritedness, of course, once in a while. I want us to be a people who are growing cognitively, intellectually in our understanding of the faith. I want us to be a people who are reading good books devouring them and enjoying them and appropriating their content. Here's the danger, however. At times, the increase in intellectual knowledge can become the end in itself. The increase in intellectual knowledge can be equated with spirituality. It isn't. All it is is an increase in intellectual knowledge, which does not do you any good. It does not do me any good unless I'm actually putting it into practice. Oh, to know more. No, oh, to put in practice half of what I already know. Half? That's a bit too generous. A quarter of what I already know. Oh, to be able to figure that out and know this and read that. No. Oh, just to be able to obey what I know is the simple, clear, plain will of God. That is knowledge. That is a practical knowledge. That is a knowledge in action. That's chapters 12, 1 through 15, 13 lived out. And my friend, that is a healthy Christian. Here's the third observation. A healthy Christian knows how to speak boldly. Again, we get that from Paul's example as we move into the 15th verse. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly. It's more than just being straightforward. Um, bold implies a little bit of courage, doesn't it? Bravery. In other words, it, it involves saying something that I'm pretty sure the person doesn't want to hear. It involves saying something where there is the potential for uh, dislike, there is the potential for disagreement, uh, there is the potential for hostility by way of response or reaction, and yet that does not, that fear of man does not stop the Apostle Paul from saying what needs to be said and from stating it boldly. And as Christians, we are called to speak boldly. Uh, we are called to be courageous. We are called to fear God more than man. Let me, however, qualify it with four points. Four points. These are from the example of Paul, the book in its entirety. I'm not going to take the time to go back and pinpoint all the references, but here is the attitude of the Apostle Paul as he speaks boldly, and we must shape our boldness, our courage, our zeal by these four things. Number one, make sure when we decide to be bold in speaking to others, make sure the reason is significant, not trivial. Make sure the reason really matters. Make sure the reason is significant not trivial. Number two, make sure the goal is edification, not demolition. Number three, make sure the tone is humble, not proud. And number four, make sure the context is thanksgiving, 
not griping. Those are four words of wisdom governing boldness as gleaned from the example of the Apostle Paul himself. Here's my fourth observation. A healthy Christian views ministry as an offering to God. You see that in the 16th verse. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. What a great way to approach your Sunday school class, all you teachers. Right? Great way to approach your class. What a great way to serve as a care group leader. Leader. What a great way to fulfill your ministry as an elder, a deacon. What a great way to preach. Uh, what a great way to serve others. What a great way to get, to get together for coffee on a Friday morning as you disciple someone or are discipled by someone. What a great way to put your hand, your skill to use around this place, fixing things, doing this, doing that. What a great way to approach ministry. I am doing this chiefly. Why? Because I want to present it as a thanksgiving offering to God. That's why I do it. I do it because I'm kind of acknowledging myself as a priest, right? And so someone who is bringing that burnt offering, that thanksgiving offering. And so I'm preparing this lesson for those seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds. And I think I've got it together. I really think I've got the understanding of the text, the lesson, and now I'm going to come and I'm going to teach it to them the best I can. Pray the Spirit of God blesses it. But my motive in doing this, my reason in doing this, is because I want that simple service as I look back, you know, on a Sunday afternoon, I look back on the morning or whatever it is I've done, whatever service I've performed, and I would say that, that was simply a burnt offering. That was simply a Thanksgiving offering. In service and ministry, my friend, you must, I must adopt that mindset. You know why? It's the only thing that will protect you from criticism. It's the only thing that will protect you from discouragement. It's the only thing that will guard you, keep you from disillusionment. If you're doing, if you're serving for any other reason other than I'm just doing this for the Lord and I want this to be a thanksgiving offering, if you're doing it for any other reason, sooner or later, you will walk away from it. You will walk away from it. Oh, our motives, the motives of a healthy Christian when it comes to ministry, viewing it as an offering to God. The fifth and final observation, you didn't think we were going to get there, we're there, but it's the longest of them all. Number five, a healthy Christian keeps the gospel at the center of everything. A healthy Christian keeps the gospel at the center of everything. Verse 16, yes, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. You go back to the introduction, chapter 1. He uses that expression, the term gospel, gospel of God, a number of times. Now that we're in the conclusion, he's going to use it a number of times. In between the introduction and the conclusion, he has simply explained it and he has applied it. If anything is true of the Apostle Paul, it is this. The gospel is the center of everything. What is the gospel? For Paul, the gospel is the entire letter. Romans. The book of Romans is the gospel. If you were to ask me, and we're going to pretend you were asking me, that's fine. But just what is the starting point? What is, what is the thing? You know, Stephen... You think about the epistle to the Romans. You think about that great word, gospel, good news. What's just the thing? Give it to me. Give us the sound bite that I need to have a hold on, a firm grasp on. 
keeping it at the center and making sure all of life and ministry and spouses and kids and jobs and everything else all revolve around this center. I would have to say the answer resides back in chapter 4. And the answer resides in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, where Paul actually quotes from King David, Psalm 32. And Paul says the following, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. I put it to you, that is the starting point. To, to have a firm grasp on the significance of those verses is foundational and it unlocks so much. Notice just firstly, quickly, as we wrap up this morning, just notice firstly, there's a problem identified in the verse. There's actually a threefold pro problem. Paul talks firstly, he uses the word transgression. Transgression is violating a standard. You're walking along a trail, there's a fence to the right, posted on that fence, private property, no trespassing. You decide to climb the fence and leap into the yard. You have just trespassed, you have just transgressed the law. Transgression is our problem because God has a law. I'm trying to get Emma to memorize the Ten Commandments right now. So the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment, you shall not make an image, right? Likeness of anything in the heavens on the above, the earth below, below to, to bow and prostrate yourself before it. There you have it. Commandment number one, commandment number two, posted. Law posted. God himself. Here it is, my standard. You shall have no other gods before me. We worship dozens of other gods every day of our lives. Things that we exalt to a position of supreme importance in our lives. That makes us transgressors. We have trespassed the law of God. But the problem, the problem goes on there. He uses the word, not, not only uses the word transgression, he uses the word sin. The word sin literally means missing the mark. So there again, it is the idea of a standard. It's not the idea of violating or trespassing laws. It's the idea of a standard to which we can never reach. We can never attain. And so if we were to take little Jack Georges, no offense to Jack, but he probably doesn't understand. Actually, he'll be way in the back right now anyway. You take little Jack Georges down to the basketball court out there and you hand him a basketball and tell him to start shooting baskets. How many is he going to make? He isn't going to make one. He's barely going to be able to throw that basketball. That is missing the mark. That is sin. Because you see, the standard is what? You are to be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. We are like little children, two-year-olds, with a basketball in our hands trying to hit the basket. We cannot do it. We cannot do it because we lost the image of God way back in the garden. So there's a problem. It's growing. The first problem is transgression. We violated God's law. The second problem is sin. We fall way short of his stand the standard. And the third problem is iniquity. What is iniquity? It's moral perversion. That's all it is. Moral perversion. We're wired all wrong. And because we're wired, wired all wrong, we have a bent, a bias towards selfishness. That is our predicament. That is our problem. But notice, secondly, in that text, there is a solution. 
God says, blessed is the man, blessed is the woman, blessed is the one whose transgression is what? Forgiven. Blessed is the one whose sin is what? Covered. Blessed is the one whose iniquity the Lord does not count. And so blessed is the one in whose life God deals with sin. He deals with that transgression by forgiving it, by removing it, taking it away. He deals with that sin by covering it, hiding it from view. And he deals with that iniquity, how? By not counting it against us. And how does he do all that? Oh, there is a name I love to hear. I love to speak its worth. What is that name? It is the name of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ, as he hung upon Calvary's cross, there is my transgression. There is my sin. There is my iniquity imputed to him. And there is the Lord Jesus Christ bearing the penalty for my sin, the justice and wrath of God in full upon Calvary's cross. And it is in Christ that my transgression is forgiven. It is in Christ that my sin is covered. And it is in Christ that my iniquity is no longer counted to me, but the perfect righteousness of Christ is now mine. Did you get all that? There's a problem, a threefold problem. There's a solution, threefold solution. There's a reason, the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't miss it, my friend, there's a result. Blessed is the one. Happy is the one. The one whose transgression is forgiven. The one whose sin is covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. You might have missed it this past week, but on Wednesday, a subgroup of the United Nations put out uh, their findings of a survey. The happiest places to live on earth. Happiest countries. And they had been conducting this survey for a couple of years and finally produced the results. Happiest place, to, happiest people on earth, Denmark. All right, whatever. 156, last, Burundi. We rank 13th, the United States. The factors by which they determine happiness, GDP, gross domestic product, right? Liberty, possessions, opportunities, social economic stability, all of these factors. What is fascinating is to look at the changes from the last time the survey was issued. A country like Greece, the last time it was issued, ranked, I think it was in the top 10. Now it's down near the bottom. Why? Because this so-called happiness is rooted in what? Economic prosperity. It is determined solely by circumstances. Please get this. That is not the happiness I'm talking about. I am talking about real happiness. I'm talking about true blessedness. And the cry of King David and the Apostle Paul echoes it is that follows. That blessedness, true blessedness, true happiness 
is found in a relationship with the living God grounded in forgiveness. Are you a happy person? Christian, are you happy? I always look at Christian when I say Christian. Christian, are you happy? Believer, is this the center around which our lives are revolving? And my friend, you've wandered in here this morning. I don't know, old, young, you're not a believer. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand the problem? It's you. I know that's offensive. I'm speaking very boldly. But I pray you understand the spirit in which I'm speaking boldly. The problem is you. God says the problem is you. Your transgression, your sin, your iniquity, you are separated from a holy God. And God says the solution is not you. The solution is his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's command and invitation to you is to repent of your sin. It is to believe in the Lord Jesus and take Christ as your all in all and enter into fellowship with the living God. And Come what may in life. I'm not promising a bed of roses. Come what may in life. I am promising you a blessedness, a happiness, a joy that the circumstances of this life cannot touch because we experience fellowship with God now and we enjoy a tantalizing taste of what awaits us as Christians in glory. Our Father, we pray that your word might ring true in the minds and hearts of men and women, boys and girls this day, that as we've opened and explained and applied your word, and as our eyes have been pointed toward a living Savior, Jesus Christ, and your glorious gospel, that you might be well pleased to work in our midst for the furtherance of your kingdom, for the glorying and magnifying of your name. We do ask it in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.